Hi, I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky, and I work with the Jesuits in Washington, D.C. If you had met Father Ted Penton right before the turn of the millennium and told him he'd be ordained a Jesuit priest in 2019, he wouldn't have believed you. Ted was an atheist when he decided to go on a retreat at a Buddhist monastery in Thailand while traveling after college. His experience there changed everything and led him on a path back to the Catholic Church, which had been the spiritual home of his childhood. Father Ted is one of the newest Jesuit priests in the world. He was ordained just a few weeks ago in Toronto, one of the 22 Jesuits set to be ordained to the priesthood in Canada and the United States this year. I sat down to talk with Ted about his faith journey, his ordination, and how he went about writing the homily for his first mass as the presider when the gospel for the day wasn't his all-time favorite passage. Thanks for joining us. Father Ted Penton, thanks so much for coming on our podcast today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, pleasure to be here with you. Excellent. So, so Father Ted, you and I worked together at the Jesuit Conference in Washington, D.C., and uh, I wanted to have you in the chat today because you were just ordained to the priesthood, uh, one of the two newest Jesuits uh, ordained priests in the United States and Canada, uh, which is very exciting. That will remain true for like three more days after we're done recording because then we'll have a bunch of new Jesuits ordained this weekend. But I just wanted to chat a little bit about that experience, what it was like to be ordained a priest after being in the, the Jesuits for a while. So why don't you just start telling us a little bit about your journey? What, how did you get to the Jesuits? Uh, bring us back to the beginning. Sure. Well, uh, I, I grew up in a, a Catholic house. I was actually quite uh, devout as a young child. Uh, and that started to uh, drop away by about the time I was 10. Certainly by the time of 12, I had little interest left in church matters. And by 15, was an avowed atheist. Um, I certainly I retained a, an interest in kind of bigger questions about life, about how to lead a, a good life. And with uh, those sorts of questions in mind, I uh, started uh, philosophy studies uh, for my undergraduate uh, degree. Uh, back in Ottawa, where I'm from, in Canada. Uh, and following uh, my sort of during that time, uh, in, in addition to the studies uh, I was doing formally, uh, informally did a lot of reading around uh, religion. I became interested from an academic standpoint, I would say, in religion, in the psychology of religion. Why would uh, this be such an important part of so many people's Lives. What, what was it about religious stories, about religious practices that really captured people's imagination? Uh, so I did a lot of reading around uh, areas like that. Uh, religious experience I found very uh, interesting to read about. Um, and from the perspective of many different world religions. Uh, so it was in my early 20s, after I'd finished my studies, I had the opportunity to be traveling in, in Southeast Asia, I was in Thailand, and uh, somebody suggested doing a retreat at a Buddhist uh, uh, monastery, a meditation retreat, 10-day retreat, uh, which I hadn't really considered before, but found intriguing as a, as a possibility. I'd been doing a lot of reading about religion and thought, well, what, what the heck, uh, why not? Uh, you know, see what comes of these 10 days. And during that retreat, which was very challenging retreat to be sure, uh, it was, uh, you know, they were waking us up at four every morning to start meditation and uh, two pretty small meals a, a day had me 
spending a lot more time thinking about my hunger than about higher matters, we might say. But nonetheless, uh, on the seventh day of that retreat, just had a very sudden and profound experience of what I would now call God's grace. At the time, I, I just knew that this was this really deep sense of peace, of love, of joy, uh, and carried a lot with it, including a desire to uh, continue to live some kind of spiritual life, have a spiritual practice be a part of my life, a uh, desire to work on behalf of those on the margins, to work for social justice. Uh, and one, one piece of this experience also was just a deeply felt knowledge that my own spiritual home is in the Catholic Church. So from that time forward, at the time I still wasn't sure if I believed in God, but I did start going back to church regularly uh, at that time. Uh, and uh, became uh, involved. Uh, I was going back, I was starting graduate studies the, a few months later, got involved with the local Pax Christi group, which is a wonderful Catholic social justice organization. Uh, we made a lot of visits to places like Catholic worker houses. Uh, there was a Franciscan soup kitchen in Philadelphia I visited. And, and places like that really uh, brought my faith alive uh, in an important way. It's interesting to me you say that in those beginning times after the retreat that you were going to church even though you didn't know if you believed. I think of, I think it's a Daniel Berrigan quote about that faith isn't necessarily where your head is at or your hands are at. Like faith is where your ass is at. Like the decisions that you make and the priorities that you have and where you're showing up to even if you're not entirely feeling it. Uh, so you seem to have some of that in your own experience of like I'm going to show up even if I don't know if I'm totally there yet mentally or even uh, emotionally. Absolutely. For me, that you know, it was something uh, that I would re reflect on certainly. You know, I, I was aware that it, it seemed a little bit strange that okay, I'm not sure if I believe in God. I believe in something. Uh, but for, for me at the time, uh, what made it clear that I needed to be in church was that for me not to go to church would be to close the door on something that was very important and very new to me. And I knew that I needed to keep that door open. And part of keeping that door open was regularly attending, even if I wasn't totally sure why I was or what the benefits of attending church were. So that door was certainly kept open because you eventually uh, discerned a vocation to the Society of Jesus. So walk me through that kind of time period then. How did that come to be? The, well, that, that's a lot of years in between there still. That's another uh, 12 years, I would say, or 10 years, 10 years anyways, uh, before I entered the Society. And there were a lot of steps. Uh, uh, the key step was after a couple of years of graduate school, I left my graduate program behind. I got a master's degree, but didn't continue on for the doctorate, uh, largely because I, w I felt really a call to be doing more direct service work at that time. I wanted to engage in volunteer work. Uh, and in uh, searching on the internet, what might be a good place for me to do that, I came across the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. Uh, and the values that they espoused of Ignatian spirituality, of simple living, of living in community, social justice, all of those resonated deeply with me. Uh, and so I applied to, to that program. For me, I wasn't discerning religious vocation at the time. I was discerning whether or not to go to law school, which was something I felt maybe I should do, even though I wasn't necessarily excited about the idea of being a lawyer. 
but thought, well, this would be a good way to see, you know, is there something that a lawyer could do, some way that I could uh, contribute in that way beyond w w what I could with my philosophy degree uh, to the greater good. And uh, so uh, JVC also offered a number of uh, volunteer placements with legal aid offices. And I, uh, I was placed in Raleigh, North Carolina, working for a legal aid office that represented migrant farm workers throughout the state. And uh, it was uh, just a wonderful placement in a lot of ways. A great work we were doing, had great colleagues, uh, and that did uh, convince me to apply to law school. So after a couple of years working with legal aid, went on to law school. Uh, after that, went back to Canada, was working as a lawyer for a few years. And then that was when uh, I felt the call come in a stronger way towards religious vocation. And from the experience that I'd had with the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, that uh, call to religious vocation was always closely tied uh, to the Jesuits. Uh, and from there, I kind of discerned uh, th that uh, that call and, uh, and eventually entered in 2009. So in discerning something like that, a big life change and coming pretty far uh, from what you had been, say, 10 years before, what were some of the things that were important to you in discernment? Some of the questions that you asked, some of the uh, mentors you sought out, what, what was important in that process? Well, uh, certainly, for, I mean, first and foremost is the, this question, is this God's will for my life at this time to uh, begin this application process uh, to the society. And uh, really uh, uh, what was central was spending a lot more time in, in personal prayer. Uh, I started going to a, a daily mass when, when that was possible at least. And, uh, and, and reconnected with, I'd had, this was back in Ottawa and Canada, I'd had a Jesuit spiritual director uh, a year or so earlier. I reconnected with him uh, and uh, started seeing him regularly. Uh, and then the discernment process kind of culminated in an eight-day retreat that I did at a Jesuit uh, retreat center in Guelph, Canada, just outside of Toronto. And I really went into those eight days with the with the very explicit question, you know, should I begin the application process to the Society of Jesus? Uh, and uh, really felt over uh, the course uh, of that retreat and, and the time previous to that, a movement in that direction. Uh, although, as is I find most often the case in matters of discernment, this didn't lead to sort of a clear answer of God saying, yes, you should begin this. And if anything, uh, on the retreat, I felt a sense of, of God uh, asking me to, to decide one, one way or the other. Uh, and God, uh, got a strong sense, would be happy with, with either. But I felt that, that the greater good uh, for my life and the greater way that I may be able to serve God would be through the society. Uh, of Jesus and, and so did discern that uh, and begin the application. Sure. So you go through that process, you apply with the Canada province, when well, now is the Canada province, uh, the Jesuits. And I know the Jesuit formation is a, a, a long process, you know, 10 or more years often from, from entering until uh, the milestone you just reached with the ordination to the priesthood. Um, but I, I want to fast forward through all of that time, and you might could draw on some of it, but curious even about kind of leading up to uh, priestly ordination, this last kind of stage for you. So if you want to bring us to 
uh, like maybe the last year or so since being ordained a, a deacon then leading up to priesthood, what that year has been, been like for you in preparation? Sure. And uh, yeah, that the, these uh, 10 years as a, a Jesuit have been very uh, rich ones and have uh, uh, found kind of confirmation of this call in many ways. The many ways I've uh, had opportunities to grow personally, the ways I've had opportunity to serve. Um, but even with all that behind me, I remember, so just over a year ago, as I was preparing for my ordination as a deacon, uh, a, a week or two weeks before my ordination started feeling a bit of cold feet. And uh, it wasn't a matter of a serious uh, question about should I go ahead with it or not. It, 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 was, it was, you know, cold feet. It was that feeling, being in church, uh, being in the church where I was going to preach at my first mass as a deacon two weeks later and just kind of having this feeling of I'm not sure that I want to be you know up behind the altar participating in that way and and preaching uh, and through God's grace uh, you know carried me uh, through those uh, those uh, last two weeks with the rehearsal a couple of days ahead of time, I started to feel a bit more comfortable with the process. Uh, the ordination itself was, uh, was a moving time. But what really hit me hard was, uh, in a good way, was my first Mass. So being back up there in that same church, Our Lady of Lourdes in Toronto, that I'd been in two weeks before, having cold feet, and just felt overwhelmed by God's grace and just this overwhelming sense uh, that this is what God has called me to, and that despite the many different ways I've uh, resisted God's call, that God has gently brought me kind of one step at a time, and that I'm here now in exactly the place that I should be. And I was just overwhelmed with joy, with gratitude, just filled with consolation to be there with the people of God, for them, this was a, an ordinary Sunday Mass, if, if any Sunday Mass is ordinary. Uh, but also with my friends and family there with me. Uh, and I was just uh, kind of holding back uh, tears throughout that, that whole Mass. Uh, and the, the graces that, that came from, from that really then carried me through over this, this last year leading up to my priestly ordination. And I had the grace that, you know, I didn't have that cold feet experience this time. I'd been looking forward kind of all year to my priestly ordination, uh, although nervous that I wouldn't be able to maybe hold back the tears the way that I had last time. And with, uh, of course, the deacon doesn't have all that much to do, doesn't have that many lines of the mass, but as the, as the presiding priest, I'd have a lot more and it would be a lot more evident if, uh, if I had a breakdown. So I uh, was nervous about that going in. So the ordination to the priesthood a few Saturdays ago, What's that day like? What walk us through that day? Well, it was uh, uh, yeah, it was a full day to be sure. That whole weekend was very uh, full. I'd had the previous couple of days. I'd been meeting with old friends and family who were in from out of town. Uh, some of whom I hadn't seen in in years, and uh, so there was just a lot uh, happening. A uh, very emotional time uh, for me in a very good way. Uh, the morning of the ordination itself, uh, decided that I would would just uh, really just be focused on the ceremony. So so I went, you know, went uh, took the the bus 
uh, down on my own to the to the Basilica, St. Paul's Basilica in Toronto. Uh, went to the downstairs place to prepare. So it was just there with the other men being ordained with the concelebrants and so on in the preparation area. I wasn't uh, kind of spending time with the friends and family before. Uh, and then coming up, uh, walking down the aisles as uh, the, the entry procession uh, was just a very moving time. Uh, it's just a really joyful uh, time seeing friends and, and family there in the, in the group. Uh, and uh, yeah, I was very happy that as the ordinance, we sit uh, up in the front, but with our backs to the, the congregation, which I was happy about, because for the first half hour or so, I was just in tears for most of it, especially my father uh, read out the first reading, and he was uh, kind of uh, getting a bit choked up there himself, which is not the, the norm for him, and, and so for me, I was just losing it at, at that point. So it was really beautiful uh, time, and, and there were multiple moments, and for, for me, uh, I mean, there's the ordination rite itself, uh, but then uh, another important time for me in that ceremony was coming down and um, uh, giving out, distributing communion uh, to people coming forward and uh, or giving blessings uh, to those who weren't taking communion. And I have a lot of friends and family, I'm thinking especially a, a lot who aren't Christian or who may be Christian but may not come to church uh, very often and, and having them uh, be there, seeing the smiles on their faces, their support for me. Uh, again, I was uh, often just mouthing the words, body of Christ, because uh, the, the tears weren't uh, allowing me to really speak the words uh, fully. But uh, so very moving day. And then, you know, of course, all the time afterwards at a reception. And then we had a later barbecue that evening. So it's just a lot of time being with uh, loved ones, which was uh, really special. Then you have to keep it going into the next day, right? Which is even, yes. in some ways, I know, uh, just as important or even or more so just uh, the first Mass where you had a chance to, to preach and to kind of be as the presider for uh, the first time. Uh, so what was that experience like? Yeah, well, absolutely. So we'd had this barbecue the, the night before and some of my friends and family were saying like, oh, we'll come out for some drinks afterwards. I said, look, if this were all over, hey, I'd be out there having some drinks with you. But for me... The, the tough part's coming up tomorrow morning at 10 and I have to have a good sleep uh, and just be as prepared as I can be spiritually, mentally uh, for, for that. Uh, and I, I was nervous. Like I said, I've been nervous all year that, that I, I wouldn't be able to keep it together during that, that ceremony. So I was uh, Googling that night, you know, how to stop yourself from crying, things like that, right? And one of the tips was to, you know, dig in your fingernails and pinching the skin between your your thumb and your index finger so uh, I you know any tip I could I was taking it by the end of my first mass uh, it was uh, I, I wouldn't say bleeding but uh, definitely some uh, red marks uh, there because um, I was digging in there all, all that whole hour but the, the mass itself uh, by the grace of God uh, came through uh, well it was again just a tremendously joyful uh, experience a wonderful time to to share that with um with uh, my family with my loved ones but you know just as much with the parishioners uh, of this uh, parish and and just feeling uh that gratitude to them that you know for this day they've entrusted to me the 
uh, kind of the, the presiding over this uh, the, this weekly mass that they attend, and uh, just being present with everyone there was uh, again at a very strong sense that this is this is where God has called me to be, and it was very joyful to to be there. Big part of that first mass is it's your first homily as a sure. priest. And so I just imagine going into that and your reflection leading up to it, what do you want to say? Obviously, you have to start from the readings of the day, the readings that are being used at, sure. at Mass, but then to how do you kind of capture what all you want to capture? So what was your process like as you were going to prepare uh, for your first homily as a priest? Well, it started a long way out, that's for sure. Uh, at least a couple months before I looked ahead to what the readings were going to be for the day, uh, and I remember my initial reaction, it was the, the readings were around uh, a, a kind of Jesus uh, uh, speaking to his, his followers that, that he's the, the good shepherd and that they should listen to his voice and follow him. And the, the readings and the prayers for the day were all around that, you know, we are Jesus' sheep and we follow him. And my initial reaction was, oh, man, that, that's not really what I want to preach on. You know, I have some some level of uh, discomfort with that kind of image of uh, of Christian life as as being sheep-like. Uh, so, uh, so I spent a lot of time just mulling it over and in prayer with it, uh, and where I eventually felt led, where I often feel led in preparing for homilies is, uh, okay, well, if there's a part that I'm not feeling comfortable with, Great, that's a great place to start, and why not kind of lean into to that? Because uh, chances are there's other people who may not feel comfortable about that either. So uh, it sort of started out then with some reflection on uh, why some of us may not love that image of ourselves as Christian, as being sheep, right? All the negative associations in our culture with being sheep-like or as mindlessly following the rules and so on. Uh, so spent uh, then quite a bit of time on that aspect in the homily, uh, but then kind of brought it around uh, to, well, what are the, the positive elements? What is Jesus really calling us to? Uh, of course, it's not to a mindless following of rules that are being laid down, but really to uh, hearing the, the voice of, of God uh, more clearly in our lives, paying attention to that. Uh, and uh, and just as or more importantly, once we do hear that voice, once we do discern that that voice, uh, to to follow it and to live that out. So, uh, yeah, that that was more or less where where we went. Sure. So you described both in that first mass experience and your two ordinations uh, having a, emotional reactions, like feeling you know at time like kind of. Uh, and I don't know if that's something you usually experience in your day-to-day -day life, uh, but it seems like there were you know, very uh, full moments. So what do you th why do you think that was? Do you have any reflection on those experiences looking back to why you had a reaction like that? Yeah, I think uh, for me, uh, my uh, emotional, my sort of affect tends to be a little more even keel. And this is one reason why these days sort of stood out for me so much because it was such an overpowering uh, emotion and I, I think that uh, th th there were just so many different pieces coming together at, at once uh, that, that that was I think a big reason for it so in, in a lot of ways this is the culmination of a process I've been involved in for a long time but one that I've often felt 
uh, conflicted about in different ways. I didn't get into, but at an earlier point, even as a Jesuit, had some serious questions about whether I am called to the priesthood or, or not. I, I had always felt called uh, very much to religious life in the Society of Jesus, but went through at a certain point of discernment, well, might, might I better live that out as a, as a brother than as a priest? Uh, and even though the, the result of my discernment over that was that, that I did believe and do, do believe that God was calling me to live as a priest, that wasn't, uh, again, that wasn't an answer I felt that I got from God with kind of fireworks or anything that, you know, saying, yes, you, Ted, I want to be a priest. Uh, it, it was a more quieter d discernment. So, um, so in, in some ways, this uh, in both my ordination as a deacon and as a priest, I felt in a much stronger way than I had previously that that confirmation. I think again, another piece of it may be that um, you know I see again and again in my life God calling me to have faith, right? And and faith. Uh, as one uh, quote that I, that I like, uh, it says, the opposite of uh, faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty, right? So I've, I've had faith that I was being called to this life, but I've never had certainty about it. The faith meant, you know, always kind of putting one foot ahead of the other, uh, putting my trust that this really was where God was, was calling me. But at, at many stages along the way, not feeling a really strong confirmation of that necessarily. But one of the graces I had on, on both of my days of ordination as a deacon and as a priest was a very strong sense of that confirmation that, yes, that having kind of put my faith in, in, in God, even though didn't have that certainty about this being my call, that I did kind of trust enough to, to make this move. Uh, felt that confirmation uh, sort of afterwards that, that yes, this is where I wanted you to, to come and where you can best serve. Awesome. So soon after your first Mass, you headed over to Rome for meetings. I was also in Rome for meetings, different meetings, uh, and that is where I got to see you as a priest for the first time. And it was this really cool experience of uh, having you celebrating Mass uh, in the crypt, so like down beneath uh, the main church at St. Peter's Basilica, sort of like the Catholic mothership uh, in some ways. Uh, I had never been there before, uh, and you, you, know, you invited me like, hey, why don't we you know, go come on if you're open to that. Uh, so that was a really cool experience, uh, unlike anything else I've ever seen. So uh, what are your memories from that, that morning, uh, waking up early and getting over to, to St. Peter's by uh, you know, 7 o'clock in the morning for this? Yeah, that was a real treat, to, to starting out with uh, waiting in the security line for a while and uh, wondering if the line wasn't going to be too long and if we'd get in in time because we had the 7.15 booking and I think someone else had the chapel booked for 8. So, um, yeah, from being there with the crowds uh, to, uh, you know, in some ways this was a connection with an, a, a, a ver with, with a way that, that our faith is not lived out as much today, but, but was more back then. So uh, with, uh, you know, there are all kinds of priests making our way into the sacristy and we were all being given our vestments and our missiles and all different languages and all being given the, 
the, the, the chalice and we had the wine, you know, our little kits with the wine and Eucharist and everything uh, and being marched off to our separate chapel, so many different chapels uh, at St. Peter's. So uh, for me, it, it was a very, uh, j- just a fascinating uh, kind of window uh, into this w- world where, uh, you know, it used to be that all these chapels and, and a lot of the churches around the world would have been lined with priests kind of saying their personal masses uh, every day, uh, much less the case uh, now that we practice like that. But uh, it, it was interesting to, to, to sort of be a part of that. Um, Certainly very moving. I mean, the chapel that we were in was right next to the tomb of St. Peter, right? So being right next to uh, to that was very, uh, very moving, right? At the real, the heart of, uh, certainly of Catholic Christendom and, and the very beginnings of our, of our faith. Uh, that was a real uh, joy. Uh, it was a real joy for me to be uh, celebrating with a fellow Jesuit, a uh, fellow Canadian Jesuit who is uh, studying in Rome, and then to have you there uh, as well. Uh, that you know, the church uh, initially when I planned it, I thought it might be just me and my, my friend Father Arthur, uh, but the you know, the celebration of the Mass is not complete if there aren't uh, lay faithful there with us. Uh, to celebrate uh, and so to have you a friend and, and colleague from the conference uh, was also uh, very moving so yeah no it was a, a wonderful day uh, all around yeah we were you know so you into this sacristy my memories of it in the sacristy which itself could be this incredible chapel the soaring ceiling and uh, this assembly line as you were describing of you know getting uh, vested for mass and having kits and then being sent off uh, then as we were walking down uh, there were like, I think people could hear us speaking uh, English and so we uh, we had some hop-on attendees at mass as well you we had the student from Loyola Marymount so some Jesuit connection who was there on a pilgrimage uh, and then that, the couple from New England uh, who also hopped on so we had uh, four of us in this small pew and you and Father Arthur at the front uh, with again this tomb of Pius VI uh, in, the, in the chapel. Uh, I, what I loved about it too is I know they had kind of said no singing aloud uh, in, because there's so many of these chapels but you could hear in different languages from throughout the crypt congregation or not these small groups singing and I, I, I like the idea that they had been told the rules but just were so joyful to be uh, in Rome at St. Peter's, they couldn't help from singing. Uh, so that was what I thought. We did not sing because we were obeying the rules as uh, you know, good North Americans. Um, but uh, I, was, I, I loved that experience. And also like when you opened it up to intercessions, everyone wanted to make sure they had an intercession in there. And I felt that I don't always speak an intercession at one of those shared small masses, but I said, oh, you better do it here when you're, uh, when you're at St. Peter's. So to pray for my wife and uh, kids was such a cool thing from, from there. Um, what do you have any other uh, kind of takeaways from that experience? Yeah, no, I, I, I certainly second you. I mean, it, it, was, it was beautiful being there. In the one sense, it's a very private mass with this very small group of us, a, a, a small uh, chapel, uh, but also very not private, as became clear after the gospel. We were sitting down for a couple of moments of silence, and, and at that time in particular, I remember hearing. Uh, I think in Spanish, uh, some hymns coming from uh, uh, just down the way, and uh, th- there was a real joy about it that was uh, evident. And uh, so to, to be both 
having our own mass, but it, it, in a deeper way, really sharing that experience with, with others that we may not have known or met, but we're down uh, celebrating uh, as well. Yeah, that real sense of the universality uh, of the faith that uh, people from, from all over it. I, my perspective is I had never been to Europe before, um, unless the, the Vatican, and to have the experience of just really seeing and hearing priests from all over, lay people from all over who are here uh, uh, because their faith had led them on this sort of a pilgrimage there. Uh, it was really a beautiful a beautiful thing and such a different way of experiencing St. Peter's than kind of being upstairs and the, with the huge soaring ceilings everywhere. This kind of intimacy, uh, yeah, it was really neat. So uh, so you were in Rome for meetings with other people who are involved in, in social justice ministry. So I, I wanted to wrap our time up just by chatting a little bit about that. You talked about earlier in your life feeling that call towards service and pursuing law school for that reason and a chance to kind of to, to serve the community, to work for justice, to serve the common good. Uh, and so you have a chance to kind of do that now as a, as a Jesuit as well uh, here as um, kind of the director of our Office of Justice and Ecology. Uh, so just talk a little bit about what your work and, and what the Society of Jesus is doing in those areas. Yeah, well, it's a real uh, a privilege to uh, have the, the role that I do now with our conference. Uh, and uh, very uh, happy with all that we, we can do in this area around justice and ecology. And, and our office uh, in particular, uh, we're the, uh, the key kind of advocacy voice for the Jesuits uh, in the United States in, in particular. Uh, in, in we're still working out exactly what that relationship looks like with uh, Canada as far as advocacy work. Uh, but we really work in three uh, three or four main areas. One is in the area of uh, environmental justice. Uh, another is in uh, kind of migration and human rights issues, especially uh, in Latin America. We work very closely with our, uh, our uh, brother Jesuits in Latin America. Uh, we also do uh, advocacy work in the area of kind of criminal justice reform and in economic justice. Uh, and the advocacy takes the form often of kind of Capitol Hill, Washington, D.C. Uh, advocacy. We'll, we'll send out uh, kind of action alerts uh, to people within our network, uh, giving them the opportunity to uh, uh, contact their members of Congress around particular pieces of legislation or to comment on uh, proposed federal regulations that, that may be having an impact in some of these areas. So. Uh, and we also uh, network very much, work very closely with our, our partners, uh, both around the, uh, the country and, and throughout the world. Really, we see our role uh, here at the Office of Justice and Ecology as being a one of, of bringing the, the voices of marginalized people to the center and bringing those voices uh, to Washington, to international fora that we may have the opportunity to, uh, to participate in. Uh, so through our partners with uh, Jesuit organizations that are working directly uh, with people on the ground, you know, great organizations like uh, Homeboy Industries out in L.A. or Kino Border Initiative that works in Arizona and, uh, and in uh, Mexico and, you know, all, all sorts of wonderful organizations around the country. These give us the links so that the work that we're doing isn't just on our own behalf, but is really kind of bringing the voices of people affected by important policy decisions in front of those, those policymakers. So 
I had a chance to attend one briefing uh, for staff members mm-hmm. in, in Capitol Hill with a, a young woman who the child of uh, immigrant parents from Mexico who have both been deported and shared her yeah. powerful story. So I, I saw how that was how it made real, kind of taking these experiences Jesuits have and bringing them uh, to Washington to help them lift up those voices so that they can hear right from people who are affected, as you said. For, for you, who has spent a good amount of time in the, the States, obviously, but from Canada uh, coming into D.C., like the heart of this kind of political uh, craziness in the States, what have been your things that you've noticed since being here uh, that have either been interesting or surprising or frustrating or just curious on your take uh, coming into the middle of our uh, largely dysfunctional democracy right now. Sure. The, the list of frustrating things could always be a long one, that's for sure, in this, uh, in this area. Uh, I mean, it's, there's no doubt that the, the, the partisanship, the, the depth of the, the divisions uh, socially and politically in this country now, I mean, it, it runs uh, deep and it's very difficult uh, to work through that. Uh, but that said, uh, you know, we're really working to proclaim the, the, the gospel and, and really to, to keep our eyes on, uh, on what's uh, central. And, you know, that, those principles of Catholic social teaching, you know, the, the inalienable dignity of every human being, right? Like that's, uh, we may have disagreements about what the best immigration policy or asylum policy might be, uh, but we think that it's an absolute necessity that we treat one another with the dignity of, uh, we're all uh, kind of the, the, the sons and daughters of, of God. Uh, we all share in that. And that's uh, something that's not uh, kind of up for, for debate. So just trying to uh, kind of bring some of that perspective uh, into these areas of, of division, I think is a big part of our role. Um, but yeah, there's no question there'll be continue to be frustrations. Uh, you know, as we work on different uh, specific pieces of legislation or regulations, it's uh, it's challenging. It's challenging for for sure. But you know, I think there is uh, th- there is still light there uh, that we can work towards. Yeah, I just think I'm so inspired by this group of religious. You know, that you're a member of. Uh, and so many other groups of religious and, and others, goodwill, who kind of come together and do. They show up in Washington in this, the midst of this darkness and mm-hmm. dysfunction. They say, no, like we have good news to bring. We have this kind of prophetic message of, of justice to offer. And, and our faith sustains us in the midst of some of that muck, knowing that like we you know, are kind of trying to bring uh, this good news that Jesus has called us to bring, to work for justice in the world. So uh, I'm really inspired by that, that work for sure. Uh, well, Father Ted, thank you so much for coming on for your discussion. Thank you for your vocation, for your yes uh, to God, yes to the Society of Jesus. Uh, and so excited to have you here in, uh, in D.C. working uh, here at the Jesuit Conference. Well, thank you for this opportunity. It's been a joy.